today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Right now, let me bring in Tom Cooper, who is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Yesterday, the Provincial Conservatives scrapped the basic income pilot project that the Liberals had implemented in the final months of their reign. Here is Lisa McLeod from the Conservatives yesterday. We will endeavor in the next 100 days to fix some of the systemic problems that we have seen in our social assistance programs but also uh, in the poverty reduction strategy of the previous government so that we can put more money in, the, in people's pockets. And where they're able is to get them back into the workforce. Now, while some, and perhaps many, have applauded this as being consistent with the de- debt reduction efforts the Ford government was elected to undertake, it's equally prompted some, and again, perhaps many, to express their disappointment or their outrage. Um, one person who I know falls somewhere in that spectrum is the man I just mentioned, Tom Cooper. Uh, where are you in that spectrum? Hey, Scott. Uh, much closer to outrage. In fact, I'm probably on the far end of outrage. This is a broken promise by the Ford government. They promised not once, but twice during the election uh, that they would keep the basic income pilot. There are 4,000 people across the province who are relying on this program, who committed in good faith to participate. There was a lot of challenge encouraging people to sign up for this basic income trial. People didn't trust the government. Uh, they didn't think uh, it would it would last. Um, but when Ford and his colleagues came out during the election and said, yes, we're going to let the pilot run its course, people put faith in that. And yesterday was a betrayal. It was a betrayal of those 4,000 participants across the province. It was a betrayal of the 1,000 here in Hamilton who have changed their lives, changed their plans uh, to coincide with what the government said they were doing. And today in studio, we have Alana, we have James, who have both been on the pilot project for several months. We have seen incredible changes, not just in their lives, but in the participants' well, lives. Explain. Expl- for those who don't know or don't really understand, uh, and we don't, you know, I want to keep it to a limited time, but explain briefly what this program is, how it differs from other social programs. Yeah, it was, it was a test by the previous provincial government to see how providing no strings attached income uh, could assist people uh, to move out of poverty, uh, get stable jobs, stay in their housing, eat healthier, stay healthier. And, and plus participate in the community. And, and to a person, I've seen positive changes in, in the people I know who've, who've enrolled in the project. And people are, are getting out there in the community again. They're going back to school. They're, they're looking to get uh, jobs and get better jobs. Uh, people are eating healthier. They have food in their fridge and in their freezer again. They are able to interact in the community, um, feel better about themselves. And, and so... The Ford government has basically cut people off at the knees now and and told them they're on their own. And that's completely unacceptable. It's a betrayal. To your mind, why is this better than welfare? Well, our social assistance system is broken. It is not working for people. Uh, not only are, are the rates woefully inadequate, if you're, if you're a single person on Ontario Works, you're getting about $721 a month to live on. If you look at the cost of, of even the most modest rental housing, a bachelor pad is going to cost almost that much on its own. You add in food, hygiene products, um, clothing, uh, a bus ticket so you could get around town to a doctor's appointment. 
a telephone so a potential employer can call you back. I, I find it really rich that we have Minister McLeod saying that the best social program is a job, uh, but the government isn't providing people with the resources to be able to get those jobs. Uh, they can't even afford a telephone uh, to call up employers and have employers call them back for an interview. You mentioned that we have uh, James Calera and Alana Baltzer. Did I pronounce that right? Yes. Okay. In studio. Uh, they are both people who have been participants with this program. Uh, Alana, we'll go to you first because Tom was saying that this has that there has been positive results from this, that people here have said. For you, what are the positive results? How would this be different for you? How has this helped you so far, this program? Well, I'd say one of the biggest things is is a simple one, having a winter coat, being able to be warm in the winter and not have to worry about being sick. I've recently had my college applications done, submitted them just last night, Regard, well, earlier in the day before the news broke, because I woke up to the news I had taken up because I wasn't feeling well. I woke up to Tom calling me with these with this news. It has changed my life. I've been able to get healthier. I can eat properly. My dental issues have been going down as a result of having proper nutrition in my life for the first time since, God, at least a decade. And had you been on welfare? Had you been on social assistance before this? Yes, I was on Ontario Disability Support okay. Program. And so when you get this, what's the difference when you're talking about all these things? How, what was the difference in income that you had that was now in your pocket from before? I was receiving 722 from ODSP with basic income. I was receiving 191575. That's almost triple what I was receiving on ODSP. And it wasn't just the money. One of the best benefits I found is not having to deal with all the rules and regulations that ODSP puts on you. You want to do something, there's a form for that to fill out. And there's so much paperwork. And with basic income, you didn't have to do any of that. There wasn't paperwork there. James, you are in a slightly, I understand, different situation. You're working and have this as a supplement to correct. that. Is that a, as I understand? Yeah, correct. I still work part-time. Okay, so how, how did that work for you? What difference did it make for you then? Well, uh, before this, I, I actually worked for one of the major banks. I, I worked as a teller, precariously employed, couldn't get full time because that position is slowly going away because of an app, because of automation, yep. which, is, which is why this pilot project is so important too. The future of technology is going in, in such a way where we need to change our relationship to jobs as a culture, as a society. So I saw my job going away slowly. And the shift for me, uh, it gave me this psychological freedom. It gave me this this ability to look at, okay, what is it that I, that I want to do? Because I'm not getting paid very much at a job that I don't really like, that I see going away very quickly. And uh, I was able to actually explore my options. And since then, I've been doing, uh, I've been looking into entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, I don't plan on being on UBI for very long. I, I plan on using it as a springboard to entrepreneurship. I've been able to do art and play music and, and get out of my comfort zone. I've, I've contributed more to society, to be honest, in the last five months than I did in the previous five years. I'm guessing you would probably know, because you may have heard this before, that some people hearing that would say, is that what this is for, though? As someone who had a job and could have kept working, is that what this is supposed to be for? I think what it's for is creating the stability for people to explore what their best talents are. For some people, for some people, it's, it's just to survive and live right. and be able to go back to school or, or eat good food. For me, it was, I was somewhere I, I wasn't very well suited for. And because of the stability, because of the um, the benefits that I had because of all of the, the things that I didn't want to leave because of fear of, you know, not having a roof over my head, I didn't explore the other options. Since then, you know, 
I'm more efficient as a citizen now because I can do what I want to do because I can do what I'm capable of doing and practicing the job skills, even if I'm not getting paid for it necessarily. I've been doing free work uh, for some businesses, uh, the one that I work for even, managing their social media. They can't afford to pay me more, but I can afford to give my time to them. And I've actually worked harder. I've woken up earlier. I've, 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 the, the amount that I've been able to do in such a short period of time is, is so much more than, than where I was and what I was doing, getting drained by the job that I was at. Tom, you mentioned a moment ago that um, it was difficult to get people signed up. I, I, I don't understand if the government says we're going to give you, as Alana says, from 770 to 1900, how is it difficult to get people to say, sign me up for that? That sounds great. Yeah, and you might think so, but what we're seeing today is, is really the realization of those people's worst fears because there was a lot of trepidation about signing up for a government program that people thought wasn't for real. And, and we've seen that to be true today. Um, people were right not to trust government because uh, government, even though they say one thing during an election, uh, they are free once they have a majority to do whatever the hell they want. And we've seen the Doug Ford government do that. Um, they have betrayed uh, the trust of the people uh, who, who agreed to participate in this pilot. And I think people like Lana and like James and like the other 4,000 participants are pioneers. They're helping to show uh, not just us here in Ontario, but really the world what a basic income could look like. And the government didn't have the courage. It didn't have the vision uh, to see this project through like they said they were going to. So let me ask you a couple of questions that I imagine will be unpopular in this room right now. Uh, the Ford government was elected, I think, I think most people would agree, uh, largely on a platform to get the debt and the deficit under control, to find places to make cuts, to cut back on expenses that the Liberals had made. That's always going to be unpopular because we've heard from every group that's had anything cut. Yep. Toronto Council, everyone else is saying, you can't cut us, it's essential. How, if everything is essential... Where can cuts be made? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Scott, but I really do believe that poverty is costing us too much as a society. If we look at really the cost of poverty just to the healthcare system, it is huge. It's phenomenal. And we know just from the short statement that Alana made that she's staying healthier. Uh, if people can afford to stay healthier, if, if, if they get the medication they need so they don't get a, uh, an illness, they won't end up in the hospital. We know staying, you know, even a day in the hospital is, is costs much more than even one month's worth of basic income. And, and so this again is a, an investment in our collective future. Um, yeah, the Doug Ford government was, was, I suppose, elected on a platform of austerity, but they were also elected on the basis of keen, keeping this particular project going. They said so on two occasions. Um, and, and so, again, I think this is an outright lie that they foisted upon the people of Hamilton, the people in Thunder Bay and in Lindsay, who are also participating in this project. And I find it deplorable. Do you know, do you have any um, way of knowing if this had been extended across the province as a fully covered, not just three centers, but a fully covered program, how many people would be eligible for this in this province? Any idea? Yeah, we're, we're not quite sure the exact numbers. Uh, we know the uh, parliamentary budget officer in Ottawa did a study based on the, on the framework of the Ontario pilot to look at what a basic income across the country could potentially look like. And uh, it, was in, it was in the range of about $50 billion annually. Um, but again, we know uh, just the costs of poverty uh, are upwards 
in that want, range. And the reason I ask is because I wonder if that's also part of the, the th- maybe part of the thinking here is that, okay, if we keep this thing going and we now have to expand it to everybody, the cost again, and I mean, it's a debate about what the costs are, as you just outlined it, but the costs would go through the roof for social assistance compared to what we're paying now. Yeah, the co- un- unfortunately, Scott, the, the costs are going through the roof on social assistance anyway. And uh, we know it's not a sustainable system. Um, not only are people not... Uh, getting enough in benefits uh, to live on, uh, but we we know there's huge costs to society as well. So I mentioned the healthcare costs. There's there's housing. People aren't able to afford to keep their rental accommodations. They're being evicted. Um, they're ending up homeless. Uh, that's again going to have a huge cost. We're losing potential of an entire generation of kids who aren't able to attain the education. Uh, that they they should be able to. Um, and that's going to have a cost to society down the road as well. We know when people uh, are given a bit of a uh, leverage to move out of poverty, they contribute to society, they pay taxes. And I, I personally think basic income was a, an in extremely good investment. Um, again, the government just didn't have the courage to see it through. have one minute left, 30 seconds each. Uh, what now, Alana? What do you do now? Well, I keep, I'm planning on keeping the plans I had made in place. They're just going to take a lot longer to achieve now. And there is something I would like to say to those who voted for Ford. If he could break a promise to us, to the most vulnerable, to the various social service organizations, he's going to break a promise to you too. You may as well expect it because it'll come rug pulled underneath you like it was done to us. And it's not right and it's not fair. James? Yeah, um, absolutely. I'm going to continue operating the same way that I was. Um, and, you know, I, I think in the next few months, I'm going to be starting a, a business. That's the pro- tra- trajectory for me. But uh, I think economically to stop the program is very short sighted. I have a degree from McMaster economics. And, you know, the economy is not just dollars. The economy is human. The economy is community. The economy is is healthy ecosystems and healthy people. And, uh, to to be so short sighted and to think of only the budget in the short term is um, I think uh, a really poor decision and I hope they reconsider. James, Alana, Tom, thanks for coming in this morning. Thanks, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now we know. I think everybody listening knows about EpiPens. I think they are common enough that there is nobody who is not familiar with these things. We may not know exactly how they work or what they do except that they work with allergies and they keep people alive. I think that's the uh, the level of understanding many people have. But we know they're important. And in fact, in this city, they have been considered important enough that Hamilton has put them in malls, uh, in restaurants there are EpiPens. These are things that are there just in case, just in case. Because I think it is widely considered that these things will save lives. Someone has an allergic reaction, a serious one, goes into anaphylactic shock, these can get that stopped, get that controlled. But here's a weird story today because it appears Canada is about to run out of EpiPens. We're in an EpiPen shortage. Now, not forever, but at least until the end of this month, they're saying, until the end of August, we are going to be facing a EpiPen shortage. It's a manufacturing shortage, apparently. And I'm not entirely sure I understand but I'm guessing that my next guest will. Uh, his name is Dr. Joseph Greenbaum. He's, he has a private practice in allergy at the Charlton Medical Center. He's an assistant clinical professor in the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, Department of Medicine at St. Joseph's Healthcare. Dr. Greenbaum joins us now. Sir, thanks for doing this today. Thanks very much for asking me. 
I think this may be one of those well duh questions right off the top. Um, and I think most people, as I said, kind of get already, but h- how important are EpiPens? <laughs> the most important thing, if you're an allergy person, I mean, uh, you know, uh, it's really the difference between life and death. Uh, there's nothing else. It's that, it's that stark, like it really is a life ab- and death thing? A- absolutely. I mean, you know that people die of allergies, of uh, food allergies, bee allergies, sometimes medication allergies. It happens every day, <laughs> virtually. And um, it's the number one life-saving uh, portable device that you have. I mean, you can call an ambulance, but the ambulance may not get there in time. It can be fast enough that within five or ten minutes that could be the end. I'm not saying that's in all cases, but it can be that bad. And and someone who has a uh, life-threatening type of allergy needs to always carry at least one or two of these devices with them. How Do we have any idea in this province, in this country, how many people are reliant on EpiPens or, or, or I guess could be reliant on EpiPens? How many people have allergies that are that severe? Uh, you know, I'll say up to 3%. Up to 3% of the population has... Uh, some type of food allergy of varying degrees, you know, like one, uh, three out of a hundred have some degree of allergy that uh, could be life-threatening depending on how much they ingest, under what circumstances they ingest. Uh, so that would be well over a million people in this country, <sighs> give or take. Uh, yeah, uh, you can hold me to a million, it can hold me to a <laughs> half a million, but even a half a million it's a lot of people. is a lot of people. Sure, a lot of people. Do we know how many EpiPens actually have to be used every month or every year? Is this common for them? I think the vast majority of people are very careful and rarely use it. You know, so the vast majority expire and they have to get new ones. Uh, but every once in a while, there's always an accident. You know, and uh, look at someone's lifespan of getting a peanut allergy when they're um, a year and a half old. You know, I've seen people who two or three times uh, between, between zero and uh, 30 years old have had to use one. Uh, so it isn't often used, but you have that peace of mind that if something happens by accident and you just were not careful enough, or even if you were careful enough and you got it anyways, you know, you have it. So uh, it's a very important um, mental thing, but also it's life-saving for sure. And do most people have multiple EpiPens, if you're an al- if you're yeah. you called it a, an allergy person, is that the correct definition now? As we describe them, an allergy person. Well, let's say in common words, but you want to be a little bit more technical. You say atopic. Okay. You know, okay. But yes, if you're an allergy person, uh, the majority usually have two or three because they have one in the car, one in the house, and sometimes they carry two with them depending on how severe the allergy might be. So at this point, then, when there's a shortage in this country, and if people generally have multiples, even if they have to use one. That would, uh, that would mean probably they still have one or two lying around. I, uh, so are we at a, at a concern phase or a crisis phase? Or what, is, what does this mean then? I, I don't think it's crisis because they're still there. They're just uh, asking you to buy less. And also there's an official expiry date. And we know for sure that they're uh, 100% good at least six months past the expiry date. And maybe up to 80% beneficial, uh, even a year or two after the expiry date. Now, we don't encourage people to have it any longer than six months because then it does start to fall off depending on how it's been stored, whatever. Uh, But, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, there is enough right now to slowly dole out 
to people who do need it. How, so how it long are they good before the expiry date? Is this like a three-year thing that they're good uh, for anyway? Uh, most often you get a year and a half out of it hmm. for an expiry date. Okay, but then you extend that another six months. But after that, you're not so not so clear. Does any part of the fact that the shortage is happening now and we are in the middle of summer, are those things connected? Because, you know, summertime is when the bees are out and other things are happening. Is, is there a, a higher usage in summertime? I don't think that's the, the issue. I think the shortage has been going on for about a year. Uh, and uh, maybe it's becoming a little bit more short right now. And so there ha- this, this last month is a little bit more critical. Uh, there's also a shortage in the United States, although maybe it's a little bit easier to obtain it, but you need a prescription if you're going to get it in the United States from a U.S. physician, usually. Uh, so I don't think it's a summer issue. I think it's a manufacturing issue. They're having trouble making the devices properly, make sure, making sure that they work. So I, I don't understand exactly what's going on. There's I was going to ask. Yeah. I was going to ask because this is, they've been around for how long now? Lo- oh many, boy. many years, right? Uh, 20, 30, yeah. yeah. And so how, and I read the same thing. It's a manufacturing problem. So at first I thought, okay, there's got to be some shortage of the chemical or the whatever they're putting in there, but that yeah. doesn't sound like it. It's no, the, there's lots of adrenaline, like in emergency departments and vials, okay. absolutely no shortage at all. You know, it's just this, why is there a shortage? You know, I don't know. I think it's, um, you know, it's like uh, car companies. They just get the uh, materials right at the moment that they need it. They don't stockpile it. You know, it's a question of uh, business uh, uh, tactics and, uh, you know, how to save the most amount of money and still get this thing out. And by the way, an interesting tidbit is they were first invented uh, for NASA when they were sending astronauts, first sending astronauts, you know, I forgot the first guy from Ohio, John Glenn. Uh, It was invented for him, you know, so that was, that takes you back to 1970, maybe. Wow. That's, That's when they first came out. Before that, they were just needles, but NASA wanted something more foolproof. That's how they came about. Exactly why there's a, sh- a manufacturing shortage of this device that's been around so long, I don't know. But what it also con- confuses me about this is that yeah. it, this seems to be, because there is, as you say, so let's say 3% of the population might need these, they are going to have to be replaced, they're going to be used, there's obviously a market for these, and yet, as I understand it, we only have one manufacturer that makes them in this country. That seems odd to me. Well, you know, there's some other manufacturers in the world, and a European version of this has already been approved in Canada, but uh, I'm not sure why they're not getting it off the ground. You know, you look, if you look across the board at industry, you see a lot of these kind of things happening, you know, where suddenly, you know, they don't have the right uh, nut for this wheel, and the cars have this production has to slow down. And if you look at medicines in general, uh, we're having a shortage of insect venom to treat people who are allergic to insect venom, and we're having shortages in cancer drugs and all kinds of things. You know, it's, uh, uh, I think it's, the philosophy is uh, just make enough to keep the market going. Don't have too much around because you're going to waste it or whatever. It's a business uh, decision rather than a medical decision. Are you at all cynical or suspicious that um, a shortage, shortages often uh, can lead to increased prices down the road because we realize how much we need it. Is there, is there any thought in your mind that this no, m- may no. be that? No, I think it's an honest business issue. You know, uh, I don't think they're about to increase the price. You know, they tried to do that uh, in the United States 
<clears throat> and then the FDA came down hard on it. They are more expensive in the States, but they tried to sort of double or triple the price. Well, wasn't it that guy who, uh, I can't remember his name, who said he, that one company in the States that was going to like raise it by 50 times and he got, uh, wasn't that, weren't those EpiPens? Yeah, those were EpiPens. And then the price was knocked down, but it's still uh, knocked down to almost where it was before mm. uh, because of pressure from Congress and a big outcry through the United States. Uh, but it's still, more, everything is a little bit more expensive in the States, these kind of things. Like, for example, your general Ventolin inhaler is more expensive. Uh, maybe it's because of um, um, uh, public uh, uh, health here that we have uh, um, uh, drug plans where people can, uh, uh, the companies can buy en masse, and therefore it's a little bit less expensive. I'm not sure. But anyway, they are a little bit more expensive in the States, but not like they were when they, like they wanted to at one point in time. Okay, doctor, this, this leads me to the one thing that, that really interests me. I mean, this whole thing is interesting, but that really, I've often wondered about this. When I was in school, and I'm not, you know, I'm not that old, but I go back into the 70s and 80s when I was very young, we, every single day, every kid brought a peanut butter sandwich to school. <laughs> right, right. Every single kid had milk. Right. Every kid had eggs. There were kids that would have brought tuna or salmon on their sandwiches. Right, right. We had no... Well, seemingly no allergies, certainly no extreme allergies. We never heard of some kid going into anaphylactic shock. Right. What has happened? Why have things changed so that now we seem to have so many more cases? The best theory is the, uh, uh, hypo- the hygiene hypothesis that if you look back in 1950, uh, you know, the incidence of allergy among the general population of all allergies was something like 3 or 4%. And the genetic makeup of Canadians has not really altered that much, despite immigrants and whatever. We're still a majority Anglo-Saxon country. And, but still, genetic makeup has not changed. But what we're doing with ourselves has changed. So now the incidence of allergy in general, not just life-threatening food allergy, is somewhere about 20 25%. It's like gone up fivefold. And it's because we're washing our babies too much, uh, and therefore we, we don't have a skin barrier to protect them from airborne allergies that enter through the skin. We are uh, having more um, um, cesarean sections. So when the baby comes out of the birth canal, it's not swallowing all kinds of bacteria that go into its gut uh, to generate uh, a diverse microbiome, as we call it, to educate our immune systems to fight allergy and, and not to have allergy. Uh, we're eating a lot more processed food, uh, and that also has an influence in the way our um, um, a lot more omega-6 versus omega-3 foods. For example, we're eating a lot more beef and chicken as opposed to fish, and that also influences the way our immune system um, matures. So there's all kinds of these lifestyle things that have changed from 1950. Uh, uh, one, one, this diet thing I, is uh, important. Um, in 1930, omega-3 uh, uh, was, um, uh, uh, I think the answer is 30%, 30 times more omega-3 in the diet then, and now it's only um, a small portion of our diet. That, that has an influence on certain types of fatty acids that are being produced, and they lead to generation of allergy processes in the body. So there's dietary factors, there's hygiene factors, there's um, uh, uh, washing of uh, skin factors, 
uh, there's slow introduction of foods. In the old days, we used to say, if there might be some algae in your family, don't give peanut until you're three or four years old. We know that that actually fosters the development of allergy. And if now, if you introduce peanut when you're three, four, five months, as soon as you can start swallowing, then you become tolerant to this. Hmm. So there's a lot of these things that we call epigenetic, the way the environment and the lifestyle has changed, uh, which is fostering the development of allergy. We're just beginning to sort of understand all this, to try to change the gut bacteria, to try to change the diet, to try to change the hygiene, to not introduce antibiotics at an early age, which also influences development of allergy. All these little factors in our lifestyle have led us to like five-fold more allergies. Some of those things, when you talk about C-sections or you talk about yes. the washing your babies, are those... Very important. Are those very, very theories critical. or are those no, n- no. established I, I factors? Would call it, I would call it established. For example, there was a, a study, I don't, know, I don't know if you want to hear the details, in Nigeria, uh, a part of this little village were living like they did uh, four or five hundred years ago, and a part were government employees living in... Um, uh, apartment buildings with lots of uh, uh, showers and baths and uh, hygiene, okay? And so, the, but the same people, okay? So the ones in the higher echelons who had uh, better life, uh, lifestyle uh, the in, and washing their kids every day, giving them baths, uh, their uh, incidence of allergy went up like we have in Canada to 25%, whereas their neighbors just down the street living in huts still at 5%. So... Uh, washing babies is very important. Uh, not having a cesarean section, but, you know, that's a medical issue, uh, obstetrical issue, is also very important. Not giving antibiotics to change the microbiome of the gut is very important. Uh, introducing all kinds of raw foods and everything you might want to imagine that might be an allergy early on at age six months or beyond, or sorry, earlier, as soon as the child can swallow. All these are very important things well-established. So although we call it hygiene hypothesis, there's uh, multiple, multiple um, studies showing that this is really true, that this is the reason for this rise in incidence of allergy. But it sounds like then what you're saying is by the time that we or our kids are, I don't know, one or two or three years old, we've pretty much doomed them to a life of allergies if we've done it wrong. That's right. We have to start in pregnancy. We have to start when you're pregnant. This is what you've got to do to sort of stop your child from becoming allergic, and especially in the families that have allergies. That is um, that is both interesting and devastating <laughs> to know for people well, listening when they got their seven-year-old kid and you go, why has he got a peanut? Well, you did it to him. Well, not really. We're not going to blame the parent. They didn't know necessarily, but that's. it sounds like there's, there's factors that could have been fixed. Yeah, we've got to get the message out to sort of revert our lifestyle to the way it was before. And, and that is very scientifically proven strong at this point. It is, uh, it is fascinating, fascinating stuff yeah. for anyone, okay. especially for anyone who has allergies or has kids or grandkids who have allergies because it is a, again, with the, the, the whole thing with these serious cases where the EpiPens are needed, it's a terrifying thing. I, I, I have family members who have had to right. use it, and it's, it is terrifying when those things happen. Um, so your, your backup is call an ambulance because the ambulances have it even without the EpiPen just in the little vials of adrenaline in which there's no shortage, you know, and extend the life by at least six months, maybe a year. So don't throw it away right away. And I bet you, you know what, if you ever had this happen, I bet you if you screamed out, does anyone have an EpiPen? I bet you there's someone around who probably does. 
You're absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't have any allergy myself, although I have some grandkids with allergies, but I always carry two in my briefcase, mm. always. Dr. Joseph Greenbaum, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Money Sense Magazine just came out with its list of the best places to live in Canada for the 2018. They do this every year. They just came out with their list for 2018, best places to live in Canada. Number one on the list, Utopia, Shangri-La, the place where no one is ever sad, Oakville, Ontario, right down the road from us. Oakville, number one, the top 10, Oakville, Ottawa, Russell, Ontario, Saint-Bruno-de-Montarville, Quebec, Lacombe, Alberta, Milton, Ontario, that's number six. Seven is Canmore, Alberta. Eight is Westmount, Quebec. Nine is Saint-Lambert, Quebec. Ten, Halton Hills, Ontario, just up the road from us. Uh, Money Sense looked at 10 categories, wealth and economy, affordability, population growth, taxes, commute, crime, weather, access to healthcare, amenities, and culture. Here's what they said. Oakville scored high in a broad range of the areas examined by the best places to live ranking, placing in the top 25% of all cities in six out of the 10 categories. Oakville residents enjoy access to Toronto's strong job market while maintaining the benefits of a smaller suburb. It goes on and on and on and says many, many, many lovely things about Oakville. Now, as I say, Milton was sixth, Halton Hills was 10th, Burlington Came in at number 31. Hamilton, yeesh. Well, if you go to Money Sense's website, you're going to have to scroll down a ways. You're going to have to go three or four screens down to find us. We came in at number 163. We are the 100. I don't know if that's going to be our new motto. We're number 163, but we are behind such places as Timmins and Sarnia and Sudbury and Belleville and Scugog and... Well, 162 other places. We are number 163. The writer whose byline is on this story, her name is Claire Brownell. She's with Money Sense. She joins us now. Claire, thanks for doing this today. Hi, thanks for having me. So I gave kind of the uh, the outline there of the categories that you looked at, but can you walk us through a little bit of the methodology of how you come? Because these rankings, are they're pretty in-depth. It is very in-depth, yes. So the basic idea is, um, you know, there are certain things that you can't measure about what makes a city great. You can't measure, you know, the view of an ocean. You can't measure uh, the uh, friendliness of your neighbors. But there are all kinds of things that you can measure. And so we try to gather data about those things, um, group them into categories, um, and then assign weightings to those categories based on how important we think they would be to your average person. So uh, you, you mentioned the 10 categories that we have. We weight uh, wealth in the economy and affordability the highest. Um, we also look at a whole bunch of other stuff. We look at healthcare wait times. Um, we look at uh, even the things like the percentage of residents that work in arts and culture, the percentage that cycle to work, um, all kinds of stuff. Um, so after we gather all that data, assign those weightings, um, we uh, crunch the numbers and see what the list generates. And that is the ranking that, uh, that, that we came up with this year. I always, with, with things like this, and I mean, again, you have what sounds like objective data or objective standards, because I always look at things like, you know, People Magazine has their most beautiful person on earth, and every year it's someone different. I say, how could it always be someone different? Because surely the person <laughs> didn't become ugly overnight. Um, that said, Oakville was 15th last year, and they're number one this year. Any idea what they did or what happened in the last year that would rise them from 15 to 1? 
Yeah, well, I mean, there are there are a few changes that were made to the ranking um, this year. Um, a couple of things I added: healthcare wait times this year. Um, I also changed the population growth category um, to give uh, more points to cities that are growing fast instead of penalizing cities that um, are growing really fast. Um, so that is one change that I made that um, probably partially accounts for it. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned, Oakville is just a, a strong contender across all those categories that we rank. Um, it's, uh, you know, got low unemployment rates, high incomes, um, relatively affordable, uh, really, you know, c- compared to Toronto, although affordability is Oakville's worst category. Um, and, and anything just, is affordable compared to Toronto. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Now, one of them though, so is it then, do these categories change a little bit most of the time? And the reason I ask again, I'm going to get to Hamilton in one second, but Milton was a really interesting one for me, which again, is just up the road from us because three years ago in 2015, it's 57th. Last year, it falls all the way to 151st. So it goes 94 spots down. And then in one year, it rises 145 spots to get into the top 10. There, that would, I would assume that means the criteria that the poll was done with changed a bit. That's right. Yeah. So Milton would be one of those cities that um, did a lot better this year than last year because of the change that I made to the population growth category. So uh, Milton's population exploding. is increasing, it's exploding increasing, increasing at a very rapid rate. Um, one major reason why that is, is because they're building a lot of new housing in Milton. Tons. Um, yeah. Yes. Tons and tons of new housing. So that's why, you know, people moving to the Toronto region, they're thinking, where am I going to live? There's a housing, uh, shortage in this city and the region. So they're choosing Milton because that's where they're building housing. So I don't think that's something we should penalize Milton for. In fact, I think it's something that we should encourage in this region. Um, so I decided, uh, you know, that, that growth is good this year. So that's that, I think that's the major reason why Milton shot up so much. Same thing with Wacom, Alberta. Yeah, Mil- Milton is about two months away from being bigger than Toronto, I think, the, the way things are going. <laughs> what sort of feedback do you get from this? Because I have to believe that when this comes out, even though some people are going to poo-poo the idea uh, that it's just a magazine poll, I got to believe that you have some people in places like Milton and Oakville who are calling you up and sending you fruit baskets after this comes out (laughs) and others are calling you many, many, many names, if only under their breath when they see this. That is absolutely right. Um, And honestly, I think that's uh, the best thing about this ranking is it gets people talking about what makes a city a good place to live. And there are all kinds of people who disagree with um, our, you know, criteria for for doing it. But I think that's good that it creates a national conversation. What makes a city a good place to live? What's important? What's less important? Um, So I think it's fantastic when people disagree. Do you hear, do you ever hear from civic officials from any of these places? Um, this year, so this is my first year in the job. Okay. Um, so far I've gotten a couple emails from PR representatives of the cities and were just asking me some questions about <laughs> why I did things the way that I did. I haven't received any. Yeah, what kind of well. car you drive and what's your license <laughs> and where's it parked so we can flatten your tires is the, uh, but okay. So we get to Hamilton here. Now, Hamilton's an interesting story. And of course, near and dear to our heart, we're calling you from Hamilton. Uh, mm-hmm. two, three years ago, Hamilton is 41st on the list. Um, not terrible, not bad. Now, I think the list was shorter at that point. I don't think there were as many cities, but nonetheless, yes. 41st yes. in 2015. Mm-hmm. Three years later, it is down to 163rd. There are going to be people who look at that and say, what in the world are we doing wrong here? Why is this city falling apart? What's the answer to that? 
Yeah, okay. So the first thing, as you mentioned, so last year, my predecessor added a whole ton of new cities to the ranking. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many he added. But um, I think what you would need to look at, if you were comparing uh, the 2015 number, the 2016 numbers rather to 2017, you would want to look at, you know, what percentile am I in as opposed to what number am I, right? Because just the, the sheer number of cities on the list just grew a lot. Um so, but yeah, in terms of this year, so you Hamilton was 163rd this year, 145th last year. So that's not a huge change. Um, I think if you're wondering why Hamilton did not do as well in the ranking as some of those other GTA cities, um, I think the main, there's a couple of reasons. So the average household income in Hamilton um, is not as high as some of those other cities. So it's uh, about $91,000. That's at the 218th highest in the country. So compared to Oakville, which has the 10th highest, Milton has the 52nd highest. It's just not as high. The unemployment rate is also a little bit higher, 5.9%. Other GTA cities is 5.7%, which isn't a huge difference, but those 0.2 percentage points, because we graded on a curve, end up making quite a substantial difference. Um, so I think that is the main reason if you're wondering why did Hamilton not do as well as some of its neighbors, um, that's, that's the main reason why. It is, I think it's important to point out, if I understand correctly, that this is this is not subjective. You you and your colleagues have not traveled Canada stopping in each of these places and making a grade on what you like about a city or not. No, absolutely not. That um, That's the entire point here is we don't, uh, we just look simply at hard data here. There's, uh, you know, obviously subjective Subjectivity is involved in deciding how to weight the various categories, no question about it, deciding what categories to include. Um, but no, there's no component of the ranking. That's just, you know, which city do we personally like the best? <laughs> that's not that's not part of this at all. It is a fascinating study for sure. And there's, uh, as I say, there's just so many cities on here. Some of, I mean, there's a lot of cities I've never even heard of. I, some of them mm-hmm. are not really cities, right? They'd be, they'd be towns yeah. almost. They're, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's pretty widespread. Uh, Claire Brownell from Money Sense, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this. Thank you. Uh, look, I, I, I went through this list this morning, and it is a long, long list. As I say, there are a lot of places on here that I have never heard of. There's a lot. There's a lot of places on here that, or if I have heard of them, if you had sat me down with a gun to my head and said, "Find this on a map," I wouldn't be around very long, because I have no idea. I have no idea where a lot of these places are. Uh, would you be able to find on a map? Would Buffalo, Alberta? Anybody? Wood Buffalo's ahead of us. They're fifty fourth. Uh, Red Deer County, Alberta. Red Deer has, or Alberta has all the great names, by the way, of all the cities. They they all come from Alberta. But we go on and on and on. You look at all these all these places. There are so many places that are ahead of Hamilton. And you know, here's the thing about this. I think a lot of people listening. There's one of two reactions that's going to be happening. The one reaction is going to be, this magazine missed the boat completely. Everybody knows Hamilton is doing well. Everybody knows Hamilton is getting better. Everybody knows the downtown is improving. James Street North, look at Hess Village, look at this, look at that, look what we're doing. They'll be saying the magazine is just completely out to lunch. The other half will probably be more angry about it. And will say, look, it's, it's bad for us. It's bad for this city that a city like ours is... 163rd ranked, the 163rd ranked city in Canada. We can't really be 163rd ranked, right? I mean, that's the, that's the perception. But you want to know something? 
for the first people who sort of poo-poo this thing and say, oh, it's just a magazine. Who cares? It's just a magazine. No one's really going to pay attention to this. I guarantee you, I guarantee you every dime that I have ever made in my life, if Hamilton had ended up in the top 10 or in the top three, or if Hamilton somehow landed at number one on this list, advertising campaigns would be getting built around this magazine's ratings. We would be putting billboards up in Toronto, in Milton, in Niagara, in St. Catharines, in Kitchener. We would be having billboards everywhere saying the number one place to live in Canada. Guarantee you, there is no question that if we had done well on this, this thing would be a uh, something we would use, we would try to leverage to our advantage. As we did, remember we had that thing, I don't even know if it's still going on, I should check on this. We, had, we were in the Canada's, or in the world's smartest city competition, and we did very, very well. And, and maybe it's still going on, I'm not really sure, but we were, it, it, Hamilton did exceptionally well in this competition. It was in a worldwide thing. We made a big deal about that because that made us look really, really good. Now, the fact that we're not so good, well, it's just a magazine. It's just a stupid magazine that just does its own ratings and does whatever it wants. You know, the issue that is with this, and and I think it's a real issue. I really do believe it is a real issue, is that, first of all, pretty much every newspaper, every TV station, every radio station, many blogs, Twitter, Facebook, everybody today around the country is going to be pointing to this story. Everybody is. Either to talk about how good their city is and how well it did or how poorly their city did. This is not something that is hidden. And we can tout to ourselves in our little echo chamber here in Hamilton how great things are going in the city. And they are. I think that there is definitely, there are definitely things that are definitely moving forward in the city of Hamilton. There's no question. If you're here, you get it. If you are from nearby and you come here. There's so many people that we hear about who come visit him to go, wow, it's not what I expected. It's a lot better than I expected. But if you've ever, if you've lived in this city for any period of time, you know what I'm going to say next to be true, even though it may hurt a little bit. We have an inferiority complex that we struggle to deal with. We live in the shadow of Toronto. We want to be considered big time. We have fought for an NHL team, all these things. We want to be liked. If you say that I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I think you're wrong. We desperately want to be considered big time, world-class, top of the market. We want people to not say, oh yeah, I drove through Hamilton. I went over the Skyway and I saw those steel mills. What a dump. And you know what? This city was built on steel. We're not putting steel down by any stretch. But if that's the only thing people see of the city and they do when they pass through, we're so sick and tired of hearing about that. This may, it is just a magazine rating. I grant you that one. But I'm telling you, there's going to be a lot of people today who are going to say, that one kind of stings. That one kind of stings. Because we believe, those of us here, we believe this city is better than 163rd in this country. And yes, it's just a magazine But man, that inferiority complex, it flares up, doesn't it, when we see something like this? It really does. It flares up when we see something like this and we say, come on, again? We got to be 163rd again? What do you think? Does this bother you? Send me an email, radley at 900chml.com. I'd love to hear. And some of you are going to say, no, of course, it's just a magazine, just like I said. 
But deep down, I think a lot of us are going, come on, could we once, once land in the top 10, top 20, top 25? Give us a top 25 just once. Come visit the city. Give us a top 25 just once. We deserve it. 163. Go take a look. Moneysense.ca is where you can find this list. Uh, Then you make a decision. Look at some of the stats. You can decide whether we are where we are supposed to be. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.